the state. I have to say as we start, I've once or twice poked a little fun at Abby's expense up here. And everybody always goes up to her afterwards and says, oh, how do you, how do you put up with that? You think she's so sweet and innocent because she's so quiet. We were about to get started today and it was about five minutes till and I looked around and our crowd was pretty sparse and as you can tell, it hasn't filled up too much since then. And I said, I wonder where everybody is today. She said, oh, they don't want to hear you. <laughs> so I don't know if it's because of the Labor Day weekend or because they're visiting Box Springs or because indeed they don't want to hear me. But in any case, we're glad that you're here this morning. I hope the time we spend here together will be beneficial for us. Tomorrow is Labor Day. And the holiday has its origins in the clash between businesses and emerging labor unions in the late 19th century. They were campaigning for issues like an eight-hour workday and a two-day weekend, the kinds of things that we don't even think about today. We simply take them for granted. You see, if you worked in a factory or a mine, the average workday was 12 hours and you worked that six days, or in some cases, even seven days a week. At some point, some people started celebrating a holiday in recognition of labor in general. That happened individually in a number of states throughout the 1880s, and then finally, it was recognized as a federal holiday in 1894. I think about that background, and I wonder if compared to people of just a little more than a hundred years ago or compared to people in other countries around the world today for that matter if we have a real appreciation for the privileges the rights the blessings that we have as modern workers of course maybe you're one of those people who doesn't very much appreciate your work in general do you like your job? You don't have to answer that or raise your hand on it. You can just think to yourself. Do you enjoy going to work on Monday morning? If you don't, you're not alone in that. Uh, the conference board, the group that tracks this, reveals that in the most recent survey, just over 51% of Americans, that is a slight majority, say that they actually enjoy their work. Now that's the highest level since 2005 and it's been trending up steadily for the last seven years. But it's well, well down from where it was 30 years ago when they first started tracking this. Many people go to work simply because they have no other choice. But they feel as if there's no purpose or meaning to it. They feel as if their life is just this merry-go-round and there's no point to their work. It's like the old Tennessee Ernie Ford song. You load 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. It's the way a lot of people feel about life. This morning, I want us to try to see our work not as drudgery, but as an opportunity. 
an opportunity in particular to serve God. We have this tendency to divide everything into secular and sacred categories. We box everything off, and those two things don't meet. We say, well, you know, I'd like to serve God, but I spend so much time working that I really don't have the opportunity to do it. And so most of us give God a couple of hours on Sunday morning, maybe another hour on Sunday night and or on Wednesday night, but for a lot of us, that's about it. To be perfectly frank, some of us don't even give him that much. Maybe it's just an hour on Sunday morning. What's interesting is we can see that secular and sacred pattern in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament. See, in the Old Testament, you have a sacred place, a sacred space with temple and priest and sacrifices. And that didn't just go for Judaism, that was common to pagan religions in, in antiquity. But the New Testament teaches that we are a priestly people. It teaches us that our bodies are the temples of God's Spirit. It teaches us that we are to present our very lives up as sacrifices to God. You see, everything, every aspect of life is brought under the dominion of God. All of it is offered up in service to Him. And so with that idea in mind, I want us to see this morning, first of all, that every activity that we do, our everyday business, is an opportunity for us to serve God. Have you ever considered that almost everything that we do affects someone else? You have food to eat because a farmer planted a crop. He raised it, cultivated it, harvested it. Or because some rancher somewhere raised the cattle that you're eating. Why did they do that? Because eating is important. People need food to eat. Jesus himself spent the better part of 30 years as a carpenter in Nazareth. He learned the trade, first of all, from his father. He apprenticed under him, and then at some point he started doing it himself. He's called the carpenter's son, and he's called the carpenter himself. Why? Because work is important. People need houses. People need yoke for their oxen. People need chairs upon which to sit. People need tables to eat at. Occasionally, and I don't want to make this sound like it happens too often, all right? I'm not tooting my own horn here. But every now and then, someone will say to me after a sermon or a Bible class, you know, I appreciate that point you brought out. I never thought about it that way before. You've given me something to chew on. And I appreciate it when people say that. I don't take compliments like that lightly. But... What's important, I bring it up to emphasize the responsibility that each and every one of us has. What we say, what we do, is important. And when I say we, I don't just mean we, preachers. I mean we, all of us. What we do is important. 
Other people are affected by what we do. That's part of what Paul means in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. This is the high point of New Testament language on Christian service. He writes there, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The word present has the technical meaning in Greek of presenting a sacrifice. We're talking about the word that you'd use if you're presenting a, a burnt offering to the gods. That's true of Jewish religion. It's true of paganism. But you notice here what the Christian presents to God is not the dead body of a dumb animal. It is our own lives offered up as living sacrifices to him. He calls it, some translations say, our reasonable service, uh, our spiritual worship, as it says here. That word reasonable, spiritual, can also be translated rational. It's a difficult word to just translate one-to-one -one in English, but what we're talking about here is what comes from the highest and best part of ourselves, our spirit, our mind, everything that's in us, what's best in us is offered up to God in service or in worship. We offer the highest and best part of ourselves to God each and every day, day in and day out. And that includes the way we live. That includes the way we work. It's all encompassing every aspect of our lives. So we don't need to think about this only in terms of our activities in general. We need to think about this, secondly, specifically, in terms of our work. You can serve God where you work. And maybe you're thinking, hey, you don't know where I work. You don't know my boss. You don't know the types of people that I work with. You don't understand the the things that they say or the things that they do or the power plays, the office politics or the flirtations or, or whatever else may be going on there. Let's consider a passage that I think is meaningful here. It comes from Ephesians chapter 6. Now, this is addressed to slaves and their obedience to their masters, but the closest analog that we had today when we're talking about a willingness to work is the employer to the or the employee to the employer relationship. Ephesians 6 verse 5, he says, "Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart." even though your boss is completely antithetical to Christ, even though he's as far away from a Christian as you could get, go ahead and render service to them, just as if you were serving Christ. The NIV translates this here, and it says not only to win their favor, but also as if they're serving Christ. I think that misses the mark here. That word only isn't in the Greek text. See, the point is that you're not doing it not merely not only to win their favor. That's not the reason that you're doing it at all. You serve in the workplace just as if you were serving Christ. That's the way you should think of the service you render on the job. 
How is that possible? How in the world can I render service in the world for Christ? Let's think here about a familiar example. I want us to consider the story of Daniel. Daniel was carried away as a captive to Babylon when he was a young man. And growing up there in Jerusalem, he was surrounded by people who were just like him. They believed the way that he did. They believed in the one true God, in Yahweh. But he goes to Babylon, and now suddenly he's in a completely different environment. He's in a pagan land, in a pagan culture. And as time passed, he found himself appointed to be a government official by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, a bureaucrat. Now, if you want to get as far away from God as you possibly can, become a government bureaucrat. That's what Daniel did. And he finds himself here working in his government office behind his government desk working his government job as a bureaucrat day in and day out, and yet he's still able to serve God. And because of his faithfulness to God, he gained Nebuchadnezzar's respect so that he rose through the ranks. But eventually Nebuchadnezzar died, and the Babylonian Empire began to deteriorate. Before long, it was conquered by Darius the Mede on behalf of the Persian Empire. But you know, because of Daniel's qualities and his service to God, he rose to the top again. Before long, he was a top official in the Persian Empire. But there came a time when pressure was placed upon him to go against God, to violate what had always been the rule of his life. His enemies passed a law that for 30 days you couldn't pray to anyone other than the king. So Daniel said, that's it. That's as far as I can go, but I can't go any further. That's a line that I just can't cross. And because he continued to pray to God, Darius, who had become friends with Daniel, was forced due to the law to go ahead and throw him into the lion's den. You know the story. God shut the mouths of the lions. Daniel escaped unharmed. But the next morning, Darius goes rushing to the lion's den, expecting, of course, to find Daniel's mangled body. Listen to what Darius says in Daniel chapter 6 in verse number 20. He came near to the den where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel lived in a pagan environment. Daniel worked in a pagan office. Daniel served a pagan king. And yet the one thing that that pagan king knew for a fact about Daniel is that he served his God continually. Incidentally, that's the one thing his enemies knew about him too. That's precisely why they were able to entrap him. Do your co-workers know that? Would they say that about you? That you serve your God continually? Do you see yourself as a walking temple of God? Do you put God first where you work so that people know that about you? Everyone who knows you considers that 
he or she, you're trying to serve God. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, sure, Daniel did that, but Daniel wasn't like me. Daniel was extraordinary, extraordinary. I'm just ordinary. There's nothing special about me. God loves ordinary people. That's why he made so many of them. There's not very many geniuses out there. There's not very many five-talent people out there. God delights in taking ordinary people and infusing them with his extraordinary power and enabling them to do extraordinary things. Fishermen, tax collectors, political agitators, the unlearned, the despised. God has done extraordinary things through ordinary people, and he continues to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. And when an ordinary person goes into an ordinary workplace simply with nothing more than a determination to remain steadfast and faithful to God, extraordinary things can happen. We need to remember Furthermore, all of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we find ourselves, are ministers of God. I've been preaching here for about eight months now. It's gone by pretty fast. It almost doesn't seem that long, even though that's not long in the grand scheme of things. Before that, I preached in Spicewood, Texas, in the Austin area for eight and a half years. During the weeks, I worked a part-time job downtown in Austin. I was actually there, all told, at that job for uh, almost a dozen years. But you know, I am no more a minister of God here than I was in that job I worked in Austin as a paralegal. And you know, if I ever quit preaching, I'll still continue to be a minister of God. Scripture teaches us that we're all ministers of God, no matter our workplace, no matter what it is that we're doing. If you're a Christian, you're a minister of God. That word translated as minister is often also translated as servant. It's the same word, and that gives us the idea. We are all servants, servants of God. Now, your particular area of service might be a preaching ministry. Or it might be a mission field. Wayne and I were talking before we started the service this morning. Wayne ramrods the food bank. That's a ministry. Wayne's a minister there. But you know, I'm no more a minister and he's no more a minister than you are if you work in a bank or in real estate or in a hospital or in the school system. Wherever you work, you are a minister for God. You are a servant of God. You have a ministry now, wherever you are, whoever you are. Maybe you don't like your job. Maybe you're a victim of circumstance. Maybe you could never get into the field that you want, but, you know, you got to eat. So you got to work. You know, Daniel was a victim of circumstance, too. Daniel didn't ask to be carried away to Babylon. Daniel was born in Judea. The Babylonian army took him away. 
But I want you to notice this. In Jeremiah chapter 29, this is a letter that Jeremiah writes to those Jews in exile. And in Jeremiah 29 and verse 7, he says that God says, I have sent you into exile. Here's Daniel in a foreign land, surrounded by pagan people, and yet Scripture tells us explicitly that's precisely where God intended him to be. God had placed him there in that land. We all know that old adage that one bad apple can spoil the whole barrel. And we often think of things that way, that evil's going to triumph over good. But you know, the reverse is true too. One good apple can have that positive effect on others, influencing others. If you're in a secular workplace, view that as a place where God has put you. You have a God-given opportunity to serve Him there in that place and to be an influence for Him in the world. So let's think about here a few ways, a few suggestions that we might be able to serve God more effectively. Now, don't think of these as rules or commandments. These are just some ideas, thoughts that maybe you'll find helpful. First of all, I suggest remain humble. Don't, don't go to work and brag about how great you've got it as a Christian. Don't look at other people and say, oh, you know, I, I used to be like you. But now I've got it so good, you know, I'm a model husband or wife, I'm a model employee, I don't struggle with those sins like you used to. That's only going to alienate people and turn them off. Self-righteousness has always been repulsive, whether we're talking about in Scripture, we find it there, or whether we're talking about in our own context. Don't do that. Secondly, I suggest don't be judgmental. Don't carry a big Bible under your arm and use it to bludgeon people every time that they transgress it. You know, if they use bad language at work, don't open it up and say, you know, it says here, thou shalt not curse. Or if they talk about what they did over the weekend, don't open it up and flip to the page and say, well, you know, it says here, drunkards are going to hell. I think about a guy I knew who was converted when he was in high school and he had been big into the party scene and... Uh, he was baptized, and the very next day, the first thing he did was he went to his high school and he told everybody he knew about how they were going to hell. You can imagine how many converts he had from that. Zero. That's not an effective strategy to reach people. You may think that you're being bold, but all you're doing is putting up an obstacle, a stumbling block for them to fall over. There may be a time that you need to be bold. I'm not saying that. But we have to be discerning. Those opportunities will present themselves. Uh, don't use Scripture as a blunt object to beat people over the head with. On the other hand, the last suggestion I would give here would be to be circumspect in the way that you conduct yourself. Even if we're not bludgeoning people about the head with Scripture, we need to be sure that we're not being influenced by them. Make sure that we're the one influencing others, lifting them up, rather than allowing them to drag us down. Remember to be the light of the world, that shining city on the hill, the salt of the earth. Have that powerful influence there in other people's lives. Don't let it be the other way around where they influence you.
And what I suggest in all of this, if you do this, it's much more likely that eventually people notice something's different about you and they'll want to talk to you about that because they're hurting. There's a void in there. They're missing something in their lives. And if you show them what Christ can do in your life, eventually that door of opportunity is going to swing open for you. Share it with them. Be there, day in, day out, setting that solid Christian example, remembering that every day, everywhere we are, is an opportunity to serve God. Back in Jeremiah 29, I've mentioned this before, God gave instructions to the Jews about how they should conduct themselves while they're in exile in Babylon. They're in this pagan environment. And expanding on what we read earlier in verse 5, God says to them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. These are practical suggestions to God's people in exile. And I think they have ramifications for us because we're living in exile too. We might not think of it that way too often, but Peter in 1 Peter repeatedly refers to us as sojourners, exiles, resident aliens. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through, as we sometimes sing. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we groan for that, we long for that. Jesus is preparing a place for me, and I'm anxious for that. But in the meantime, we're here. And while we're here, God says, build houses, plant a garden, get married, have children, marry off your sons and your daughters. Seek the welfare of the place where you live, because in doing that, when that place prospers, you're going to prosper. Let us, all of us, endeavor to be God's man or God's woman. Be part of society, but don't give in to society's way of doing things. Daniel didn't. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't, if we want to pull on an example from his contemporaries. They said, we can go this far along, but there was a point where they could go no further. Now, there were consequences. There were fiery furnaces, there were lion's dens, but God saw them through that. And whatever obstacles you encounter in serving Him, God can see you through those too. We must be in the world, but not of the world. I hope this is a message you can take into your workplace on Tuesday. I hope that in some way you can see your workplace as a place where you can serve God. But of course, there are those who are no longer in the workplace. Some here here who are retired. There are some who are students. You haven't entered into the workplace on a full-time basis yet. But I hope you can see that these principles are bigger than just going to work. These principles apply whoever we are and wherever we are.
carry God into each and every area of your life. Because wherever you go, whoever you are, you're a minister. You're a servant of His. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never become God's servant. I want to encourage you to make the decision to do that today. Put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. Turn to God in repentance. Be buried in baptism. Have your sins washed away. Begin to live that life as a servant of God. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian, but you haven't been that example, you haven't been that, that minister, you haven't put God first in every aspect of your life the way that you ought. If you need to make changes in your life this morning, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.